0: Going beyond the headlines? Getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. The human ability to rationalize, defend, and accept our self-imposed drama is bananas. Especially because we have all the power within us to choose and create realities that totally kick butt. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hope all is well with you and yours on today's program. Speaking of self-imposed drama, kind of, the carbon tax. Nothing gets you quite up and riley, quite like talking about that contentious levy or tax or whatever you want to talk uh, call it. It's going to be a topic of conversation in just a little bit here over at Mount Royal University. Actually, the University of Calgary downtown campus. It's a part of a bigger conversation involving Trevor Toom, Sarah Hastings-Simon, Kenneth Green, a bunch of different speakers that you've heard right here on 770 CHQR. The keynote speaker for the event is Dr. Asim Prakash, and he's going to join us in just a few minutes to talk about the economic case for a carbon tax, also the political appeal Of a carbon tax, why the two shall never meet, frankly. But what can governments do to get the point across, or is it just better to live and let live? So we'll talk to Dr. Prakash in just a few minutes. Also coming up through the course of the show today, the Youth Hiring Fair is here in Calgary today, the 21st annual. uh, Susan Un will join us from the Youth Employment Center after four o'clock as well to dive through some of the tips and tricks for some of our young people who are trying to get into the world of work. Big guest coming up after 5 o'clock by the name of Dr. Richard Starkey. Yes, that Dr. Richard Starkey, the uh, one-time MLA who will not be running in the upcoming election for Vermillion, Lloyd Minster. uh, He's been widely revered, I think, as being a man of respect, a man of dignity, and whether or not you agreed with the party politics, he always had... Uh, something, it wasn't necessarily positive, but thought-provoking to say. And so I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Starkey join us after 5 o'clock. And we'll also talk a little spring yard care. Because, I mean, let's face it, I I got the same thing. I'm thinking, you know, after the snowfall, man, my yard needs a little bit of work. And by a little bit, I mean a whole heck of a lot. Because, well, there's a, a, you know, dog... Dogs doing dog business and that kind of thing. Plus, the grass wasn't exactly left in the greatest of shapes. So, mate, what are some of the tips and tricks as we head into the weekend where it's supposed to be a little bit warmer? You might want to get a little bit of a head start, maybe over the course of next week, uh, next few days, prepping things up. So we'll talk to Merle Coombs, a familiar voice here on 770 CHQR from Spruced Up Gardening, to talk a little bit about that. Oh, and yeah, after 4.30, before I forget, we'll also talk a little federal politics. I didn't get into... Um, clearly yesterday was a little busy, a little bananas. Didn't get into the federal budget. I didn't get to read through it when we got on the air yesterday. I've read through most of it. I to walk you through some w- of what we thought were the winners and losers, but I also want to take us back to question period today in the house of commons, because again, I like providing you with a little bit of context. You might be driving home from a day at work and going You know, are my politicians giving me my best bang for my buck? I know a lot of you are saying, no, that's clearly going to be a no. I'm going to prove to you why it's a no, because once again, it was a gong show, to put it bluntly. And it's fascinating now is now that we have a provincial election call of April 16th. Does that open up a question of could we get an early election call federally? Some food for thought. Could we get in a federal election before Canada Day? Would it serve Justin Trudeau to do so? Maybe. Certainly a topic of conversation that we can get into uh, before the end of the show today. But we're going to talk carbon levy. I mean, carbon tax. I mean, how do you sell this thing? Or even if we do say we're going to get rid of it with the UCP government, are we going to be that much further ahead anyways? Dr. Asim Prakash from the University of Washington is our first guest here on Calgary Today. All right, let's get into it. Dr. Rasim Prakash is a political scientist. He's also the director of the Center for Environment Politics at the University of Washington. He is in town today for a special get-together. I'll get to more of that in a second. Dr. Prakash, thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure. When it comes to the carbon tax, is there an economic case to be made for it? Absolutely.
1: So the economic case for carbon tax is quite compelling. Essentially, the idea is if you do something bad, you should be punished for it, right? And that's why you'll start doing less. So if emitting carbon is a bad thing, then there has to be an economic penalty. And carbon tax provides that economic penalty for carbon emissions. That's the economic case. But there's also the political case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Political case is slightly different because politics is really about who gets what and how. It's not about economic rationality. It is about distribution costs and benefits. So the problem carbon tax is facing are of the following kinds one people don't like the word tax there is a kind of a citizen revolt what we call populism uh taking place across the world where people are losing faith in what we call elite institutions and don't think the government is really serving their interest and therefore they are not willing to part with their resources to the government so one is the word tax which is a taboo word it used to be taboo in the united states but it seems the taboo is extending to other parts of the world as well, that's one. Number two, there's a perception of being unfair. So, If you think of the yellow west protests in France, President Macron imposed a a levy, a tax on fuel uh, as a part of his climate goals. But France, rural France uh, erupted in protest because a couple of years ago, uh, President Macron had given tax cuts to the rich. So in their perception, uh, President Macron is trying to balance the climate books on the back of French farmers who don't have much access to public transport, who are dependent on their cars. So this is actually taking away resources from them. So there is a perception of unfairness. Mm -hmm. And this was also one of the reasons why carbon tax lost uh, the referendum in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. The third, which is quite a vicious fight in the United States, Uh, less uh, vicious in in Canada, is how the money is going to be spent. And broadly, there are two philosophies. First is, it should be revenue neutral. So revenue neutral means you take money from people through the carbon tax, but you give it back to them. So that you don't have a typical tax and spend government, but the government is only trying to change the relative prices so that the behaviour aligns with ecological and environmental imperatives. The second is what you call revenue positive. Here you collect tax money but use that tax money for renewables, mass transit, and so on and so forth. So in the United States, the moderate conservatives favor some version of a revenue neutral carbon tax where the money is collected, but the tax money is returned. It could be a carbon dividend, it could be a tax cut, it could be X, Y, or Z. But the environmentalists and the liberal left uh, want a revenue positive carbon tax. That means they actually want carbon tax to generate new resources that the government can spend on mass transit renewables so in canada both the federal version and the version you have in alberta tends to be more of the revenue neutral side because the money is returned to households of course it's not returned to firms but to households so i think the politics of carbon tax really varies in the united states there's not only a liberal and conservative divide on whether to have a carbon tax but also what type of carbon tax.
0: I'd be curious to know your thoughts on one of the parties here, the United Conservative Party is, uh, one of their first b- pieces of business, if elected, would be to repeal the carbon tax. And I wonder what kind of economic uh, ramifications that move might have. And beyond that is, uh, from an, an environmental standpoint, where does how would that impact uh, how we're looked at here in Alberta? Right, but you know, if Alberta
1: repeals its carbon tax, the federal tax will kick in. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it really changes uh, the, the reality on the ground. So this is what I call cheap political rhetoric, because uh, they really can't repeal the carbon tax because it will get substituted by some other tax on carbon, but through the federal government. But hypothetically speaking, suppose there's a legal challenge that Ottawa and a couple of other, you know, provinces have launched mm-hmm. or are threatening to launch. And carbon tax is held illegal or the way the Trudeau tax, the way it's designed, is held illegal. And there is a repeal. I don't think there is much change at the ground level for for two reasons. First, the money is being returned to people, to households. Number two, the level of taxation is quite abysmal. What do I mean by that? So yesterday I did a spot check. I asked a couple of people that, do you have a carbon tax in Alberta? And people said, yeah, I think so. I said, how much is it? How much do you pay extra at the the gas station? They said, I don't know. So I was surprised. I asked a range of people. Nobody knew exactly how much extra money they're paying. It's about six to seven cents a liter. which is not even one-fourth of the annual variation in the price of petrol. So the price signal that the existing carbon tax is providing is grossly insufficient to change behaviors because people don't even notice the price signal. So I don't think uh, if the carbon tax is hypothetically repealed, there will be much, much change. I think it will be status quo. Uh, if carbon tax really has to work, it will have to be jacked up so that people start feeling the pain. And, you know, they say, okay, let's start driving electric, let's start doing this, let's try let's start doing that. Mm-hmm. So that will make way for what we call behavioral changes.
0: But the way it stands now, I don't think it's having much of an impact. Is there a benefit for Alberta to be in charge of its own carbon tax for carbon levy versus the federal?
1: I think, you know, this is, again, it's an economic question and a political question. The political question is yes. I think if, you know, people are self-governing institutions, self-governing entities. If they have more control over their destiny, the better it is. So I think the political case is compelling. It's our tax, we decide what to do. But even the federal tax, if it's enacted, the way it's written, as per my understanding, the money they'll collect from Alberta will be given back to Alberta. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the federal government is going to do a money grab. So I, I really don't know, of course, federal tax is going to rise at a certain level. It's possible that the increase in tax envisioned in, in Alberta may be slightly different, but by and large, I don't think in Canada there is so much of complication and confusion about
0: a federal versus a local tax, unlike the United States. You mentioned the economic case and the political case for, and I'm curious, how do you make the carbon tax or carbon levy more politically acceptable? Or can you, because the opposition is going to be there to, and you mentioned off the top about the label of a tax versus a levy, uh, that was attacked right off the bat. I mean, the province still here alludes to it as the carbon levy, even though most people associate it as the carbon tax. Right. So in Canada,
1: you have actually enacted a federal carbon tax and several provinces, starting with, you know, uh, Quebec, then British Columbia, Alberta, have enacted a provincial carbon tax. Mm-hmm. So all of you are far ahead of the United States in this game because you actually have had through a legislative route a carbon tax. In the United States, it's very difficult. Uh, at the federal level, carbon tax is almost a non-starter. For one, President Trump is against it. Mm -hmm. Number two, Republicans control the Senate. Hypothetically, in 2020, if Democrats win the White House, they also win the Senate and can keep control of the House, then there's a chance. But the way United States Senate is structured, we have what we call the filibuster rule. So you need a supermajority for what we call spending bills. That's why Democrats could stall the border wall funding because of the filibuster rule. So I don't think without any concessions to the moderate republicans the carbon tax would work at the federal level and the concession would be it will have to be revenue neutral because there are lots of prominent republicans moderate republicans what we call the the Wall Street republicans that have endorsed a revenue neutral carbon tax but the environmentalists in the left will have to come around that they will use, they'll not be able to generate new resources to spend on renewables, on mass transit, X, Y, or Z. So I think it's a political compromise that will need to be hatched if a carbon tax has to be, uh, has to get any traction at the federal level. But at the state level, I think the story is slightly different. Uh, I think carbon tax is dead in most places. Uh, the way states are going is what we call cap and trade. California has done it. Uh, they're in phase two. Oregon is Ah, uh, very clear, very close to doing it. State of Washington is actively debating cap and trade. Uh, in fact, it's again debating a carbon tax, but in the legislature, not through a referendum. And a couple of northeastern states are talking about carbon tax. Uh, are talking about cap and trade. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's the politics is much more complicated in the United States because of the extreme ideological polarization uh, and also the way the legislative rules are structured.
0: Dr. Prakash, one final question for you on the polit- politicization front, is is there a way for government to show the benefits of a carbon tax if they are going to go, as you mentioned, carbon neutral or if they go carb uh, if they go revenue neutral versus revenue positive, how do you show that there is that there is some benefit to it?
1: You're right. So this is a failure of political communication. Those who propose support a carbon tax, the onus is on them to tell people how exactly the money is going. So if opinion polls show that people in Alberta don't understand that money is actually coming back to them and they they don't see that money when they file their annual tax returns or whatever, then I think it's the government has uh, had a serious communication failure. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, if you are, you know, kind of proposing and defending a policy, you have to explain it to people. That's why Roosevelt FDR, he did his fireside chats because he was able to directly connect with people and tell them exactly what he's doing and why he's doing, the great communicator. So I think we need those kinds of, you know, communication skills, uh, trying to make people understand what exactly it is doing and how it will help or hurt them. Mm-hmm. And people who oppose it are always able to caricaturize any, any policy and point to an extreme picture. So the onus is really people who defend a policy to paint a positive picture truthfully, but in a way that's accessible,
0: not get lost in, in jargon. And there's a lot of jargon certainly to be had on that front. Uh, Dr. Prakash, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. As mentioned, 4 until 6.30 at the University of Calgary downtown campus. You'll be able to hear Dr. Prakash as well as Dr. Kenneth Green from the Fraser Institute, Dr. Sarah Hastings from the University of Calgary, as well as Dr. Trevor Toom. Uh, All that you've heard right here on 770 CHQR. So very uh, grateful to, to, to have the conversation. Again, as I mentioned yesterday off the top, is my intention here is to open up the eyes of everyone on all the different topics, whether it is... Education or jobs or healthcare, carbon tax—you name it. This is going to be like I said with the carbon tax. The problem that Premier Notley got herself into is there was no campaigning on this. There was no sell job on this at all. It was basically, "Here's your carbon tax. Now deal with it." It's Calgary today on seven seventy CHQR. Lots of people from all walks of life and all age groups looking for jobs around our city. And today's looking more like towards the youth demographic, the youth hiring fair, the 21st annual hitting the big four building down at Stampede Park. So you know that the traffic around there, especially as school's over, is going to be a little bit backed up around there this time of day. Joining us now to talk more about the fair itself, Susan Yuen, who is the Community Relations Liaison for the Youth Employment Center, and she also helped put this all together. Susan, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Give us a little bit of a snapshot of what today is all about at the Big Four.
2: Yes, so today is our 21st annual youth hiring fair. Um, we have over 80 employers here and they are expecting 5,000 youth to come through over the course of the day. Um, there's going to be thousands of opportunities here for the youth, so anything from retail, hospitality, um, logistics, there's security companies here as well, so really something for everyone. And what's great about the event is all of the youth can make a face-to-face connection with hiring managers here.
0: Talk a little bit about the idea of getting ahead of the curve. I know a lot of kids, a lot of youth are sitting there going, I can wait until June to get a job. But the faster you get on board, probably, and get into the eyes of the employer, the better chance you're going to actually have of of attaining a job come the summertime.
2: Right. So a lot of the employers are recruiting for the summer positions right now. Um, And in fact, a lot of our booths sold out back in December. So the employers do plan out well in advance. And the Youth Employment Centre has also been trying to prepare these youth in advance um, by having our employment counsellors prepare them ahead of the event. So getting their resumes ready, helping them practice their elevator pitches so that when they come here, they're really set up for success.
0: Talk a little bit about an elevator pitch. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that before. So I'm curious what that's all about.
2: Okay, so it's really about making that great first impression right off the bat, so a 20-second introduction to yourself, talking about what kind of education or skills that you might have and any value that you might add to the company, so maybe you have experience already.
0: Talk a little bit about the aspect of getting uh, youth involved in it and making sure that they understand that, you know, whether it's the current economic uh, situation or the current job status out there. I mean, there's there's a lot of different factors that weigh in. So what do they have to keep in mind as they try to get themselves into that workforce?
2: Well, they want to make sure they're setting a good first impression, Um, even if today doesn't lead to a job immediately. There's a lot of chance to network and to build those connections for the future for their career.
0: Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about as well the notion of the the side of the employer as well and what kind of attitude they have to go into it when they know that they're they're employing uh, someone uh, younger.
2: Yeah, so the employers here are very eager to hire the youth ages 15 to 24. A lot of them have come year over year. And the excitement, I wish you could see it, but they are really eager to meet everybody today.
0: Going back to some of the tips, I think, for those who uh, are listening, going, oh, I wish I would have had little Johnny or Susie actually sign up for this and make sure that they were down there. What kinds of tips would you give to those who are going out on their own, uh, dropping off resumes, that kind of thing? How do you stick out in such a busy uh, workforce land like you see right now?
2: Well, a lot of the employers these days will ask youth to apply online. So really it's a matter of getting that targeted resume ready. So looking out for those uh, core qualifications that they're looking for listed in the job posting and incorporating that into the resume. What's great about the Youth Employment Centre is we're open all year round for those youth ages 15 to 24, and they can drop in any time to get help with that resume piece.
0: And as you mentioned a little bit there is uh, the talk about patience and understanding that, hey, if you apply for one job and that's the go-to job, and you don't get it, you got to keep going.
2: That's right. And the Youth Employment Center partners with hundreds of employers all throughout the course of the year. So we're a great resource for youth.
0: Fantastic. Susan, I do appreciate the time this afternoon and all the best with today's job fair. Thank you. So, again, the job fair happening up until six o'clock over at. Uh, The Big Four building down at Stampede Park, Susan U.N., the Community Relations Liaison for the Youth Employment Center, giving you a few tips and tricks as you try to navigate through the job market for the youth as summer job season is just upon us now. I wanted to draw a little bit of attention to this today because uh, I didn't get to go all in on the budget from yesterday, the federal budget. There were a lot of winners and losers and and uh, our fine folks here at Global News have put together a great list of who maybe came away with a victory, who maybe came away with an L. And so I'll post a link on that uh, on my Twitter at Calgary today in just a few minutes. But as I was looking through and trying to figure out where question period was going to go today. I realized that a lot of it we're not going to be able to air because we are an English-speaking radio station. And most, actually, all of Justin Trudeau's answers were in French because of, I believe it's National Francophonie Day, I believe. Um, He made mention of that right off the top, and then all of his answers were in French. Uh, So that kind of became a challenge. That being said, he was definitely uh, the reason why things kind of went off the rails today, as there were a lot of back and forths as usual. And then he started yelling, and things got real heated. House leader. Well,
3: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister is really good at yelling and screaming at women, as the member of the nose, and he's also a very good actor. But Mr. Speaker, he's a fake feminist. We know that after the principled resignation of the former president of the Treasury Board, another good old. Boy, of Finance said she just quit because she was good friends with the former Attorney General. Oh, and that's just what girls do. Mr. Yeah. Speaker, why is the Prime Minister and his friends thinking it's so much easier to silence women and, at- Mr. Speaker, they were yelling through most. Order.
4: 35 quest seconds to ask a question and the same to answer it members know that there's much too much talk during the house during particularly during answers One, occasionally occasionally there is a bit during questions. But there shouldn't be either. Neither should occur. Members should show respect for the rules and institutions of, uh, and, and traditions of this place on both sides. So I appreciate very much the Honorable Member's interest in the question of decorum.
0: I feel really bad for the Speaker of the House. Because that's like herding stray cats. It's like dealing with kindergartners. Both sides After that whole outburst in the House of Commons during question period today. And again, if you actually watch the video and and the playing the audio doesn't really do it justice because the prime minister was red faced and yelling. And you know that if somebody snapped that picture, it's going to end up on the front page of a lot of newspapers in this country because it didn't look good optically. And when I was listening to the translator, it sounded a little condescending. And that's what led to this from Candace Bergen.
3: Mr. Speaker, we know know that the Prime Minister likes to just say that women have experienced interactions with him differently. Boy, where have we heard that? one before. But Mr. Speaker, we know what the member, uh, the Liberal member from Whitby said. She had an experience where the Prime Minister phoned her and yelled and screamed at her so loudly her husband could hear it through the phone. Why is it that he can't see when he silences women, when he yells and screams at them, when he says that their experiences are just different perspectives? He is demeaning all women and showing what a fake feminist he
0: that obviously drew the uh, ire of the prime minister who went on to say that he actually there was one part where he tr- I almost wanted to challenge andrew Shear in being who or who would be more feminist like i'd welcome the contest was sort of his saying and i'm going this isn't a contest Like just be a decent human being that's all it takes Michelle Rempel didn't like that.
3: Here's the problem for the Prime Minister. He asked for strong women, and this is what they look like. Women who won't sacrifice their principles to cover up his corruption scandals. Women who stand up... day and refuse to back down against his abuse yes. of our judiciary, of parliamentary committees and more importantly, the use of the term feminist, Yes, fake. I'll ask one more time, if this prime minister is such a feminist, why is he for- muzzling the former Attorney General? Yes.
0: <clears throat> and certainly it doesn't look good on the prime minister when SNC-Lavalin comes in and says 9,000 jobs, that wasn't part of the discussion. Oh, I can only imagine that this, here's the fascinating part, is now we talk about the provincial election being ethics versus the budget. I see this the same way in the, pro, in the federal jurisdiction as well, although I don't know, based on that budget, if Trudeau's winning either of those. My argument, not even a little bit. With the rip being dropped yesterday, that opens up a few different doors. And clearly a lot of people have a few uh, different writings in mind on which ones might be uh, contentious ones or ones that have a little bit of intrigue to them because they have no incumbent, for example. And one of those happens to be Vermilion Lloyd Minster or Dr. Richard Starkey. Uh, With the writ being dropped, he's going to be no longer the MLA for the area as he decided he's not going to be continuing with politics. We'll be joining him in just a minute here. A few others that are going to be David Swan is another example. Calgary Mountain View is uh, going to have an empty seat as well. And so a lot of questions about, you know, what what uh, kind of sticks out in their mind during their political lives. Uh, lives and what kinds of things would they like to see as people focus in on this election? And Dr. Richard Starkey is on the line now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Happy to. When you look back on your time as an MLA, what sticks out most is maybe some of your favorite memories first.
4: Well, the favorite memories were, were some of the positive things that were
0: accomplished uh,
4: during our during our time in government. Uh, I mean, the tourism framework, but. Uh, uh, that was passed during my time as tourism minister is now helping uh, the Alberta tourism industry on its way to becoming you know, one of the major economic drivers in uh, our province and that 's very positive um, as well as the uh, you know the work that was done to recover from the southern Alberta floods in the provincial park system. this is something that you know a terrible tragedy that we had in two thousand and thirteen uh, and you know, by twenty fourteen a lot of the park system was you know already in on, on being being rebuilt. And I was in down in Canada's country last summer and it's amazing the recovery effort that's been
0: there. <laughs> I remember meeting you for the first time. It was down at the Stampede grounds, and I remember cornering you for a quick one-on-one. And what amazed me most about it was how quick you were on everything, which made me think, this guy is a well-read individual. How much pride did you take in that aspect in being able to answer any question that was asked regardless of uh, the subject matter?
4: Well, I, I attribute that to my veterinary training. I mean, uh, especially being in mixed practice we're we're having to know about multiple species and uh multiple different uh, body systems in you know, a wide variety of species, and so you have to be up on top of things. And, you know, I approached my job as an MLA the same way as I did as a veterinarian. You had to be professional, you had to be uh, well-read, you had to, you know, do your background checking, and you had to know what you're talking about. And so that was something I, I was took pride in. And, you know, I also said that if I didn't know, I would just flat out say, look, I don't know, but I'll get back to you.
0: What did it mean to you as uh, you made the announcement, or not the announcement, everybody knew it was coming, but you you send out that tweet and you're getting the respect from everybody across the spectrum. What did it mean to you to have uh, those kind words thrown your way?
4: Well, it's very gratifying. I mean, uh, I ran in 2012 and again in 2015, and the only thing I promised people is that I would serve with integrity and that I wouldn't sacrifice my principles, I wouldn't abandon my ethics Uh, You know, they they were, these were all things that served me very well throughout my veterinary career, and it's something that I built my reputation on, and uh, being a politics shouldn't mean that you walk away from those things. In fact, I think most people would like to see their politicians adhere very closely to their uh, their morals and their principles, and that was something that I worked very hard to do throughout. Uh, I mean, it's a challenging field to do that in, but... You know when I when I heard from people you know right across the political spectrum that felt that I, I was successful in doing that, that felt really good.
0: I had to laugh a little bit because I had the feeling that you were going to try to stay out of the election and then here you are uh, a few hours after the fact going and having to weigh in on something. And I I wanted to get your, your take on the current political environment now and whether it's lies, whether it's deceit, whether it's expanding on the truth, what is going on in your mind in politics right now here in this province?
4: Well, I I do have a very profound concern about what's going on in politics in our province. I I mean, uh, I I maintain that ethics do matter and uh, that that we have to uh, apply ourselves in ways that people can rely on. And uh, I I do think that there is uh, some telling of what I'd call half-truths. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that people are, are saying something that is you know, necessarily a lie, but they're not telling you know, the rest of the story, to quote an old radio show. And, and you know, I called out both uh, the NDP and the uh, UCP for that here a few months ago in the legislature because they both participate in that practice and it doesn't serve the
0: voters. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you this. Is what do you think voters should keep in the back of their minds as they're going into this election? What should be most important on the in in your eyes?
4: Well, you know, and I've I've, I've said this before that uh, I, I think uh, the uh, the decision that often gets put to the side, but I think is one of the most important decisions is who do you want representing you, regardless of party stripe, regardless of the leader of that party. Who do you feel is the best person to represent you? Because ultimately, when you know when you have an issue with government, that's the person you're going to go to, and that's the person that's going to resolve your difficulty. And you know, and I, I've also said in the past that you know governments are made of people, and you're only going to get as good a government or as good an opposition as the quality of the people that are in that uh, in those positions. And so, you know, I think it's important that people look very closely at who their local candidates are. Um, I think one of the things in our British parliamentary system is, you know, we have, you know, sort of three things to decide and only one vote. You know, we have party to decide, we have leader to decide, and then local candidate to decide. And unfortunately, I think sometimes local candidate gets pushed down. The criteria, and I actually think it should be the number one Mm criteria. And
0: and final question on on that front would be, what would your message be to all of those MLA hopefuls as they go on the election trail?
4: Uh, Stay true to your principles. Uh, Don't let uh, the political world change you or change who you are uh that's really important uh you know people will vote for you if they feel they can trust you and if they feel that you're a person of your word uh if there's uh, some question about that or there's some doubt about that uh then you know a you haven't earned their trust or their vote and uh, b uh, the chances are is that uh You know, you're prepared to abandon those principles uh, at uh, the first sign of adversity, and that's uh, that's problematic. I I think we need, we really need people in the legislature, regardless of their political stripe, that are prepared to stand
0: by their principles. Agreed. And final question for you on a personal front: What's next for Richard Starkey?
4: (laughs) Well, uh, I've got a few things on the go. Uh, You know, and I said at the time that I announced uh, I I plan to write a book. I plan to learn Italian so I can understand opera better, and I want to get a puppy. So uh, we're working on all three of those. Although Italian is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be.
0: On the flip side, I'll bet you finding a puppy is maybe the easiest part of that list.
4: Oh, well, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting, and I mean I, I had to laugh. Somebody said, you know, that that's the best reason they've heard yet for leaving political office. but... <laughs> you know, uh, a puppy, you know, for my veterinary practice, I mean, I know that having a puppy is a a big commitment and something that I've always been able to devote a lot of time and effort to and uh, I'm looking forward to that.
0: We've been dogless for close to a year now and uh, the house really feels empty. I can only imagine. Well, best of luck on the search for that and best of luck on the book and the Italian as well and uh, again, thank you so much for uh, your service to this province and, and always a pleasure to chat with you, Richard.
4: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Richard Starkey, outgoing MLA for Vermilion, and Lloyd Minster. And, and I want to endeavor to try to bring you a few of the different voices who are exiting the political scene after this election uh, as the writ has been dropped and not the ones, usually the ones that are... Um, exiting because on their own BS, not because, you know, they've been voted out. So Dr. David Swan is one of those people who I've always found much the same as as uh, as as the doctor there, Dr. Starkey. Is I have a lot of respect for those who will take the time to have those personal conversations. And Dr. Starkey was, again, one of those guys. First time I met him was at Stampede uh, right after the flood. And we probably had a 20, 25-minute conversation before I even hit record. So that says a lot about uh, a guy who's able to, or a gal who's able to, just have a conversation. And that was a great conversation there. It's Calgary today on seven seventy CHQR. If you're like me, you looked at the backyard after the last few days of melt and went, "You have to do something about that soon." But what do I do, especially now in the middle of March? And so I I thought I'd bring in Merle Coombs, spruced up gardening, and of course, host of the show, Let's Talk Gardening here on 770 CHQR. Merle, thanks for joining us as always. Hi, hey, Joe. How are you? Fantastic. I'm curious off the bat is I saw some city crews out pruning trees earlier. It seems a little early, isn't it? Actually, pruning trees is actually definitely a lot better time to do it is
5: when they're dormant. Right now we're looking for the, we like to say the three Ds of of tree care, dead, damaged, and diseased. So that's what you're trying to remove at this point for the most part. A little bit of shaping. You want to do it just before they send out all their new buds. And this way you can also see the structure of the plant and the tree a lot easier, and you can get in there and, and just tell what the bark is doing and it's much easier for the arborist to do it at this time of year. Mm-hmm.
0: Any telltale signs that it's really winter damaged and it's not going to come back green?
5: Yeah, definitely. You start looking, and really, I like to look at trees in the off season because it's just like your skin. You know, when you see somebody's real sick, they they kind of look pale. They don't look good. And same with the trees. Like you look at the bark, you see a nice, healthy tree. And you can just tell by the color of each variety of tree if it's healthy. And then you'll see this different discoloration throughout the tree. And that's typically where you'll see disease or there's damage and broken and you see it dying back. And if something's totally dead, you, you grab a live tree and you can actually feel that it's cold because there's moisture in it. Mm-hmm. And if you touch it and it feels like really warm wood you pretty much know it's dead, Joe.
0: <laughs> and, uh, that's good good stuff. I mean, there's there's certain things that I would have never thought to go, oh, the temperature, right? Like, the never would have thought in a million years. Let's turn our attention to the grass. And yep. there might be that thought of, hey, you know what? I didn't do the raking right before that last snowfall. Is it too early to rake still? Absolutely. Or? absolutely too, too
5: early to rake right now because you're going to do more damage. We had real deep frost this year. So you're best to wait, even when we get closer to uh, another month, at least almost before you really start raking because the ground's totally frozen and you'll start seeing things come up that's when you can maybe and it's and it's totally thought out i've seen guys out with aerators almost already and they just bounce off the ice like it's it's way too early to even think about lawn care just let it stay dormant we're still going to get some cool nights you can definitely um you, if you want to add your fertilizer you can do that at any time i know we had a lot of people picking up the green it up fertilizer the 1632 six get that high middle number in there, get the roots going, get it nice and healthy. So that way, when it does warm up, the energy's in the root system ready for it just to take off like crazy.
0: I might be one of those people who got a little lazy during the cold spell and didn't bother to clean up after my puppy. Will the, <laughs> the puppy, uh, his leavings or her le- leavings, yeah. will that affect the yard at all or should I try to get rid of it now?
5: Yeah, no, you should definitely try and clean that. And we have a product called Dog Spot Prevent. It's a natural product. It's like an organic rock. It neutralizes the soil, so any of that urine damage, it really helps neutralize that. Because otherwise, you're going to get a lot of damage um, from the poop and the pee of the of the dogs in your lawn, without uh, if you haven't cleaned it up over the winter time. So definitely do that. Um, and one and really that's about it. This is the time we can still procrastinate. We're still in planning stage. Looking outside, do some cleanup. Yeah pick up the garbage, anything that's blown in your yard. And the only thing I just wanted to mention, Joe, on the pruning is birch and maple are the only two trees that you don't prune right now. Mm. You have to wait till they're fully leaf out. Otherwise, they'll leak out water. They bleed on you.
0: Right. Oh, Fascinating stuff, as always. And, of course, you can listen in. Let's Talk Gardening Sundays 8 till 9 here on 770 CHQR. Merle, thanks for a quick week midweek update as we head towards the weekend.
5: Any time in that Sunday, 9 to 11. But, oh, I got that
0: all messed up in my head now. My my mistake. <laughs> That's uh. why
5: you never listen to
0: me, Joey. <laughs> uh, so I'm always sleeping on Sundays. That's the challenge. I appreciate the, the that on that front. Uh, Merle, is always a pleasure. All right, take care. <laughs> oh, Merle Coombs from Spruced Up Gardening. Uh, I, I got to figure out how to wake up earlier on weekends. That's the challenge. Of course, the other part of it is I listened religiously when I was a news director, and all of a sudden, Sleeping in has become primo for me. Uh, this is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.